0: I felt like I'd failed. We got lost. It started raining last night.
1: For society, you have to be boy or girl and not both. I wish I could write about just the
2: pleasure of sitting here and looking at these ripples and looking at these clouds,
3: different versions of
2: water.
4: <laughs> we brushed the dew off and Butterbur, grown shoulder high
3: into a little spot. Called
5: Ladies Well. Because, you know, we deserve to be there as much as anyone else. Holy
4: well. Making a home here for a few more days.
6: This is Queer Out Here, an audio zine that explores the outdoors from queer perspectives. I'm Jonathan.
7: And I'm Alice. Welcome to Issue 2. The pieces in this issue take us from ponds, lakes and wells, to parks, forests and mountains, from immediate surroundings to remembered and imagined spaces. There are some longer conversations and reflections, some quick audio postcards and a little bit of poetry too.
6: If you haven't already listened to issue 1, you can find it on our website, or probably wherever you found this one. Issue 2 is slightly shorter, though it's still over an hour long, and it has a more reflective feel, with a focus on being in the moment and inviting the listener into a personal relationship with place and space.
7: Before we begin, we'd like to say a huge thank you to everyone who contributed a piece, and to people who recorded the sweeper for us. Thanks also to everyone who shared Issue 1 and helped circulate our call for submissions for this one. And of course, a big thank you to Eris Barnes for their beautiful cover art.
6: Full show notes for all issues of Queer Out Here are available at QueerOutHere.com listen. This includes cover art, track listings with short descriptions and timings, information about contributors including links to websites, social media and other work, artist statements, content notes and full transcripts.
7: The pieces in Queer Out Here talk about many things related to being queer and the outdoors. This issue contains some swearing, mention of physical and emotional distress, Difficult family relationships and social situations. Experiences of physical injury and hardship. Danger from the elements and being misgendered. Please check our website for full content notes and specific timings. Or search the issue transcript if you need to avoid particular words or phrases. If you still have concerns, you could ask a trusted friend to listen through first to check for your specific triggers. Or send us an email at queerafhere at gmail.com.
6: And now it's time to take your ears adventuring. Let's get Queer queer Out Here.
7: We're
3: the Rainbow Ramblers, and you're listening to Queer Out Here.
6: Our first piece in this issue is from our first repeat contributor, Mags. Lady's Well, Holy Stone takes us to the north of England, to a holy well surrounded by a grove of trees. This is something of an audio postcard. We get an idea of what Mags has been up to, a glimpse into the different stories and meanings of the well, and a small sample of the oral environment. It's something we'd love to hear more of, postcards from places that are special or interesting or important to you.
3: So here I am today, a lovely sunny day in May, in the middle of Northumberland. And although I've been in the southeast of England for about 20 years, several times a year, I make the return journey to the northeast of England to see my family. So today I've come out to a place called Holystone and to a little spot called Lady's Well. Uh, and from the sign put up by the National Trust, it is a holy well. It was a once a watering place beside the Roman road from Brominium in Reedsdale to the coast. It was walled around and given its present shape, either in the Roman or medieval times. St. Linian, the 5th century apostle of the border, is associated with the site and with other wells uh, beside Roman roads in Northumberland. The name Lady's Well came into use after the first half of the 12th century, and Hollystone became the home of a priory of Augustinian canonesses dedicated to St. Mary the Virgin. The well was repaired and adorned with a cross, and the statue was brought from Annick in the 18th and 19th centuries. So what we really have is um, a well in the middle of um, farmland in the Northumberland National Park. Um, absolutely stunning views all the way around. My only company at the moment are some curious sheep and lambs, checking out what I am doing. Uh, Fantastic views right the way across the National Park. Um, It's a very large Celtic style cross in the middle of the well. And at the other end is the said statue. beautiful spot. Um, I do live in Northumberland. I believe it's still the least populated county in the country. Um, even today, driving uh, through the countryside, it's probably only about an hour from the centre of Newcastle upon Tyne. Um, you know, Once you sort of get out of that uh, area surrounding the city, it's uh, you, know, you don't see much in the way of vehicles, quite a few cyclists, some nice cycle paths and roadways around. So I'm just walking around the path around and you will possibly hear the water from the well which still provides um, the village with its water. So I'm going to spend a, a little more time here Lovely, it's May, still some bluebells out, um, yeah, absolutely beautiful secluded spot. Um, so perhaps just a little time for some contemplation before I head up on the road. Um, prior to coming here I popped into the parish church uh, in the little village of elsdon down the road, lovely little place. So let's see if I can find anything else interesting today on my travels. Mags, signing out for Queer
7: Out Here. I love listening to this story with eyes closed. It's like sharing a walk with Mags and seeing times change around the well. The pool remains, interpreted differently as society changes. The next piece, Ripples in a Pond at Night, keeps us near water by a backyard pond in America on Mohawk land. Marianne Thomas, a travel nurse, bike tourist and a writer, sits by the pond. For her, this is an occasion to let stress dissolve from her body. It's a time to reflect on nature, herself and the idea of pleasure. There is a sense of luxury, being in a wide open space. But there is also the idea that nature is not an escape from the world, but an opportunity for us to process emotions and thoughts.
2: I'm sitting next to the pond out back behind the house where I live in upstate New York. There's a lot that I could unpack in that statement about why I'm here or who else lives here or why there's a pond back here, but I'm just going to let you all listen for a minute. It's post-sunset, and the sky still has that nice lightness as dark thunderclouds roll in. It looks like they've been approaching for a while, and I can hear thunder from afar. But it hasn't started raining yet, so I'm still sitting here. If I look up for a long time at these patterns in the sky, I forget to, to look down at the the pond with its ripples extending from the bubbler in the center. Ripples of a pond at night look so milky, so thick, so untouchable. And even though there's little light, I can see tree reflections on the water. I've spent a lot of time sitting out here since I moved to this house about two months ago I spend a lot of time in my head I spend a lot of time doing heavy shit like writing lately it's been writing about institutional change and sex and queerness and relationships. You know, it's weird. I went on a, a bike tour across India. So you'd think that I'd be writing about that lately. But I got back and it just feels like the world is in this horrible tornado. Of emotions and violence and trauma. And people being terrible to each other. And for a lot of people just realizing that being terrible to each other is unacceptable and so calling each other out on shit and it's a beautiful process but damn I wish I could just write about this pond this weird house I've been living in that makes no sense to me still but is so peaceful I wish I could write about just the pleasure of sitting here And looking at these ripples, and looking at these clouds, different versions of water. And how some days I just spend hours staring at the stars. It's such a little luxury. So between writing about heavy shit, I come out here, I stare. Sometimes I listen to music. And then I realized that silence can be nicer. Sometimes I call friends. It's been a really nice place to talk real loud, to laugh, to process shit with people on the phone. You know, I can't imagine living in a city anymore living on top of somebody else. Literally on top of somebody else when you're on not the ground floor here, there's so much space. You can just sit and think. And everywhere you look, it's just space. There's nobody. Earlier, I came outside listening to that new Ciara song, Level Up, and just danced my ass off. And then I sat on the little deck uh, that juts out into the pond with the two dogs that live here too. And I just stretched. I did, you know, the same stretching routine that I've been doing since high school. And the dogs just fought for my attention and then they laid down and hung out with me. And I just felt the sun soak into my skin There's a lot about pleasure and the outdoors that I think about lately. About how bike touring really taught me that life is a series of moments and it's okay to acknowledge that. And that if we're miserable during these moments, we're spending our lives miserable. Um, not everything has to be Connected to something big or political or meaningful. These moments are all we have. When I'm biking and I get to eat a good dinner at the end of the day, or I get a shower and I watch the rivulets of black water run down my legs and down into the drain. Or when I bite into a piece of chocolate. Or when I sleep and I sleep so well. Or when I watch a fire, sit next to a fire I built and just feel the heat from it and notice the difference between the heat on my hands and the cold on my back. And know I created that thing, that heat. Well it's just so pleasurable. It just feels so good. And I don't think I don't think there's anything wrong with chasing that. I don't think there's anything wrong with sitting out on a deck by a pond and feeling the sun soak into my skin or staring out onto thunderclouds and pond ripples for hours or watching stars appear and remembering wonder. it feels good and the air feels good for the first time in years i haven't had to take an allergy pill every day and i'm living with a cat which i'm allergic to the air is just so good i'm leaving i'm going to be living out of my car for about four months which I'm excited for. Movement feels good to me. I've been looking forward to getting back out west and getting back towards mountains. But as the date of leaving de- approaches, I'm just feeling the ways that this simplicity, this lack of mountains, this lack of excitement, there's nothing to achieve, there's nothing to climb. There's nowhere to go if I don't want to. Everything I want is in my backyard. You know, it just... I'm appreciating it. I'm looking forward to movement, but I'm also appreciating what stillness is. This unexpected home.
6: Carrying on from the sense of space and the pleasure of place in Marianne's contribution, the open architecture of this next piece invites a slowing down, a recalibration of breath and attention. Our first musical contribution this is Stone Strike's Lost Weekend remix of Beloved, a song from Emily in Love and Autanique. Stone Strike writes, Getting older and being less able to get out and about, I've turned increasingly to music for its ability to invoke a sense of time and space. When I listen to this piece, I sometimes imagine a long vaulted room, open at the sides to hot sun and orange trees, a tiled pool inviting and cool at my feet. And at other times it's the kiss of night's air on my skin as I look down into a valley, to a river and a highway snaking far below.
7: For me... When I listen to this piece, I get a sense of floating in a pool, staring at the sun in a blue sky. I find in it a sense of calm and flow that can happen when I'm cycling, and everything is just right. The base, my body, the landscape, my mind, the body.
5: I'm Jessica, here on vacation, from Canada at Rye Harbour Nature Reserve, listening to the water at a shingle beach, and this is Queer Out Here.
6: Thanks, Jessica. Our next piece about failure comes from Julia, who currently lives in Amsterdam. When Julia pitched this idea to me, I jumped at it. Failure is something we often don't discuss and don't know how to handle. What happens when we fail? Especially it's something we've dreamt of for ages, something we've told people about, something we've spent energy and money and time planning and preparing for. It's something I know I've had to contend with, and even when I've been able to reframe experiences as learning opportunities, or when I found silver linings, it's still difficult. I really appreciate Julia's openness about her struggles in this piece. So on the 2nd of May, 2018,
8: I sat under a tree and cried. Not gentle tears streaming down my face, but the sort of sobs that rack your entire body and make you shake. I was crying because I'd just sent an email to Race Control. saying that I quit. So I should backtrack. I'm Julia and I was riding the race around the Netherlands. A 1,670 kilometre race, non-stop, self-supported, around the Netherlands, funnily enough. 29 people signed up. 28 people made the start, six of those 28 were riding as three pairs, the other 22 were riding as solo riders. 21 men and me. I scratched from the race, that's the term they use in this sort of thing, scratching. I scratched at 20% distance which is about 340 something kilometers. And I'd been racing about 34 hours. But I was just in so much pain. When I woke up the next day, I couldn't rotate my neck. I had a number of intensive physio appointments before I regained the use of my neck. But the hardest thing was For days, for weeks, I felt like I'd failed. And on the face of it, I had. I'd set out to ride 1,670 kilometres as fast as I could without any support that wasn't available to everyone in the race. And after 360, I'd quit. coming to terms with that failure has been a whole different challenge. I told myself going into the race that I had three goals. Goal one was to make the start line. That I achieved. Goal two was not to be the first person to scratch which fortunately for me, unfortunately for the others i achieved and goal 3 was to make the finish line and if this i failed i told my friends that i was going to do this race and the amount of support i got in person and on social media was just amazing it took so long to come to terms with it all. On the day that I scratched, I rode in tears, arguing myself for tens of kilometres. As the only girl racing, it felt like there was a pressure on my shoulders as the sole representative of 50% of the population. I argued with myself. Am I letting people down? And am I letting myself down? Was I naive in even starting? Was it a mistake to sign up? It's now three months later and I'm sat on top of the Muir de geer in Belgium, in Flanders. Anyone that follows pro-bike racing will know of it as the infamous climb in the Ronde van Flanderen. But those that follow ultra-endurance race- racing will know it as the start of the transcontinental bike race. I've just sat here and waved off over 250 of the best riders on the planet that have started their journey from Gerardsbergen to a town in Greece I won't try to pronounce. 4,000 kilometres, self-supported, solo. Those riders are going to go through all sorts in the next two, three weeks. The fastest are expected to get to the finish line in eight or nine days. The slowest will make it in 30. Anywhere between one third and 50% won't get there at all. Some of them will scratch through no fault of their own accidents, equipment failures some will scratch, like I did from the race around the Netherlands, because they didn't plan properly. Because they weren't fit enough. Because they were naive. All sorts of reasons. And every rider has their own reason. And for every single one, the emotional roller coaster of failure. And it's something that we don't. Talk about enough, both as outdoorsy types and as normal people, in inverted commas. How many of us have set out to walk up that mountain and not made it to the top because of the weather, because we weren't fit enough, because we got lost? Is it a failure? What does it mean? And it's a tough one. And I've been thinking about it for months now. In fact, no. I've been thinking about it for years. Because we fail at many things in life. LGBT people often either get accused of being a failure or our parents say that they are a failure because of how we turned out and the emotion is very similar and it's hard. No one wants to fail. No one wants to make that choice. Not every failure has to be a failure. A few days after I finished my attempt at the race around the Netherlands, I got a message from a friend. It said, what you did is amazing. It inspired me to ride. I've just done 120 kilometers. I sent back a polite message saying, well done, that's great. And then a couple of weeks later, I got another message. I'm thinking of riding 500 kilometers from London to Newcastle. Could I pick your brains please? So I cycled over and we sat in a cafe in Alkmaar and chatted. And my friend asked me questions about her route, the kit she was taking and what she was doing. And I, someone who, whose idea of a good weekend tends to involve cycling to the middle of nowhere, sleeping under a tree, cycling to somewhere else in the middle of nowhere, sleeping under another tree, and continuing back home. I looked at what she was planning, and I was in awe. And the only reason she'd thought to do it was because she'd been following what I had done with my race. I hadn't even done in the race the distance that she was planning to do on her first tour. I hadn't completed the distance I'd set out to do, but somehow it had inspired this other person to go out and have an adventure. And it amazed me. And that success that was completely unexpected almost cancels out the sense of failure that I had with the race itself. Okay, there are times when I think back and think, what did I do wrong? What could I do differently? But the unexpected result is still a result. The same as in science, a null result is still a result. I didn't succeed with the race using the method that I was using, but I'll definitely be on the start line next year with a slightly different approach. I'll train more. I'll have a better understanding of what it is I'm doing. And so I tell myself I didn't fail. I just found one way that didn't work. Next year, I try a different way.
7: The next piece, Snow, Tires, Breasts, Song, invites us into a physical experience as Nikki brings us along for a bike ride in the snow. But her field recording, like any, conceals more than what it might seem. Nikki writes, the area has a reputation as a popular place for cruising and, as a woman who wanders around on her own a lot, have been explicitly and implicitly warned to stay away from here. In the early hours of the morning, however, I have the woods to myself. Intense concentration on the subtleties of speed, traction, balance and momentum dissolves as I come to a stop, my awareness first shifting to my labored breathing, and then outwards to the song of the birds that are around and above me.
6: Nature doesn't judge. This was a theme that came up a bit in issue one and it's carried through into this one, including in our next piece, No Gender. This piece is from Lise in France. Lise talks about how difficult it can be to live as someone who has no gender in a society that expects and enforces binary gender on people. For Lise, nature offers a place and time without this pressure, somewhere to de-stress and forget for a while, but also somewhere to recharge, ready to step into the world again. And just a reminder that if you can't quite catch all the words in this piece, the full transcript is available on our website.
1: Hi, I'm Liz, a young um, graphic designer. I'm an artender. When I was younger, a teenager, I looking for what I am, who I am, so sometimes I have a very boy look and sometimes a very girly look, but never be happy with it, so... When I grown up, I discover that I'm no gender. I think no gender is very difficult because you have a body, a female or male body. Tell people what you are. For them, I'm a girl because my body is a female body. For society, you have to be boy or girl and not both or not another. You need to choose. And you don't really choose because it's your body tell you what you are. The third is my escape for the society because the nature don't judge you, it helps you to think, to find who you are, what you are, what you want to be, what you want to fight for. Because I feel the energy, I'm very an energetic person and in nature I think I can discharge my um, food energy and recharge with a very beneficial one. So, the negative go outside of me in nature and positive come back. It's not a very positive, a natural one. And I make it positive after when I come back in society. So, that's why outdoor is very important for me and why it's very helpful. I can, yeah, I I can liberate my negativity and all the stress and struggling and everything and and come back very... uh, very good, very well. That's why uh, I go outside. So it's Christmas, and I spend this time with my father and uh, the, the husband family of my uh, sister. And they have a lot of people, a lot of noise, and unknown know people, so I don't know how to interact with them. And also, I'm sick. So it's not very good feeling at first. And at this place, they are a big forest. So I decide to take a break and go to walk in the forest. I take with me a book because I, I really like to read and I don't know how I will walk and maybe stop to read a little and come back after, but I take just a book in case. And so I just go to work, no phone, no, no clock, nothing, just me, a book, and the nature. And so I walk step by step, take a break, walk again, take a break, walk again, and I don't see time go. And I, I arrive to the big place, an open place. And I enjoy the view, sit on the floor, and read a little about art and After I come back at home, I feel better because uh I feel ready to fight the people and to and not so sick and When I come back, the fun fact was my father and my sister are very uh, intrigued because they tell me, oh, you come back, but it's make an hour. You were in us. We are looking for you. We don't know where you are. And I say, oh, I just find it's just an half hour. Are you back? Nature
7: doesn't have to be a place of escape. It can also be a place to just be. Fenrir's rebellion brings us along into one of their trips. Like Mike's piece, it has the feel of a postcard. We sit with Fenway and their dog at a campsite after a day of accidental mountain climbing. We snatch a moment of their day, invited into their thoughts as they reflect on the day and their surroundings.
0: So, this is the second site on my two-site camping trip. Murray Lake. I got here yesterday. You know, had a good time. I had lots of hours. There were lots of dogs around, so Cisco go, um, got some play in, and uh, the weather was pretty okay, like nice. And it started raining last night, and it's barely let up today. It let up enough for me to um, walk down a road and try to find a trail, which was down another road. Another three kilometers and I didn't want to walk another three kilometers so also I heard sounds in the woods so I stopped because <laughs> I'm solo camping anyways right now I have this little setup in the rain here oh my gosh I can't believe you dog ah uh-uh. no <laughs> my dog is stole a meat skewer from another campsite <sighs> Anyways, um, I'm camped next to a, a site with a, uh, fire pit and a picnic table next to a tree, and the tree is dry underneath, so, uh, I got my cassette stove, and I'm making a cup of tea before the end of the night. Um... When it's been sunny, all the surfaces have been doing that thing where uh, all the excess water just immediately starts to evaporate, so everything steams. Um, And right now, because of all the lake and I guess the sun earlier in the day, the lake is steaming. Um, Here's a uh, stovetop cooking me some water for tea, and rain.
6: That sound sends me right back to all the times I've sat in a tent in the rain drinking cups of tea. What a wonderful feeling. Fenrir is in Canada and notes that Murray Lake is in Leketmurk territory. And the next sweeper, from Emily, was recorded on Wurundjeri land in country Victoria, Australia. The contributors and we, the editors, pay our respect to elders past, present and emerging and extend this respect to all Indigenous people who are listening.
9: This is Emily. I'm in Australia. I'm just outside of Melbourne um, at a Girl Guides camp. Uh, I'm quartermaster, so right now all the girls have gone off to their activities and I'm doing the washing up after lunch. And it's a hot day. I can hear the wind in the trees. I can hear little twitchy tweets of small birds. Uh, I can also hear a bunch of kookaburras having a laugh off which seemed too perfect to not record. I hope you enjoyed it. You're listening to Queer Out Here.
7: Thanks, Emily. This last segment begins with a conversation between Max and Jay, a non-binary couple. In their recording, they bring us to the Sierras in California to share a part of their lives and their experiences outdoors. I love that they don't present themselves as perfect hikers. They sleep, get muddy, forget water, misplan, but they still have fun. I can definitely relate to all of that. It's also interesting to hear of the comments and conversation they have encountered in the countryside and how they have noticed a difference in culture between countryside and cities. What means one thing to one person can have a very different meaning to another coming from a different angle.
9: My name's Max. My name's Jay. And we're the non-binary nomads. Uh, We live in Monterey, California, and we have a dog named Bosley and three cats. Um, Voldemort, Rafiki, and Quincy. So our first trip was the Skyline to Sea trip.
5: Yeah, it was a trail that I'd been wanting to do for a really long time. So when Crook said that they wanted to go backpacking, I figured it would be a really good starter. Yeah, so we were
9: only supposed to do like 30-something
5: miles? Yeah, like 32 to 35. And we ended up doing like 45 yeah, cuz we got lost on the first day and then we also there was a detour um on the third the third day which extended our trip a few miles and that was also the day that we ran out of food. Yeah, so we had packed what we thought was enough food, but we got
9: a lot more hungry than we than we had planned. And so we knew that there was a shop, like a little grocery store kind of thing in Big Basin. And when we got there, we walked up to the little windows where all the rangers were staying, and we asked them if uh, they could open the shop for us, and they said it was off-season, so it wasn't open on the day that we were there.
5: It was open on weekends, and we got there on a Monday. So we just barely missed
9: it. And then it was cold, so we asked them for firewood, and they said that we weren't allowed to have a fire in the campsite that we had reserved.
5: Yeah, and it dropped to, like, low 30s that night. It snowed at higher altitudes, so at least we skipped out of that. <laughs> so it was a pretty crazy backpacking trip, but we've also had worse. It was amazing and fun and beautiful. Yeah. But starving is never fun. No. <laughs>
9: uh, what else? Let's see. We got engaged in June. So basically two months ago, we were hiking the Tahoe Rim Trail.
5: Yeah, and <laughs> so it was kind of a two-day trail that we were doing, and the first part, the first day, where all the views were on the first day, so it was all the monumental moments on the first day, but... Super pretty. The problem was, is there were 20-mile-per-hour winds, and so hiking wasn't terrible, I mean, for me, but... Um, <laughs> Apparently someone here had plans to ask a certain question and you can't do that during 20 mile per hour winds. I I couldn't even hear anything yeah. you were talking about.
9: Anytime we got to a vista or a cool point where pictures would have been awesome, it was windy and we couldn't even hear each other speak.
5: Yeah, it was it was pretty ridiculous how windy it
9: was. So I waited until the second day when we had run out of water. <laughs> which there always seems to be something that goes wrong on our backpacking trips. Um, but we hiked off the trail a little bit, couldn't find any water. I wiped out. Uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> you I forgot that, that you fell. <laughs> I had my, my pack on. It was probably like a 30-pound pack.
5: I was really worried about you.
9: And we were hauling butt off trail to go find water that we didn't know where it was necessarily. And I slipped My feet fell out from under me, and I landed flat on my face with my pack on top of me.
5: You had dirt on your teeth.
9: Dirt on my teeth, (laughs) blood on my legs.
5: (laughs) It's funny now. It wasn't funny then. It was not
9: funny then. (laughs) But uh, we decided to abort that mission and go back to the trail and hope for the best. So we did, and sure enough, maybe a sixteenth of a mile back on the trail, there was water. Yeah. So that was a bummer. But we continued on and made our way to Lake Watson, which... It was still pretty, but it wasn't as pretty as the vistas that I could have asked the question on. Um, we were sitting on a log, um, facing the opposite way, and you're kind of joking around.
5: How did it go? I, I don't know. I think I said something about, "Do you want to marry me?" or something, or I probably did something gross, and you were, and I was like, "Do you still want to marry me?" And I said, "Yeah." <laughs> I do, and then
9: I said, do you want to marry me? And you said, of course, dummy, you've already, we've already said that. And then I said, no, and I pulled out the rings and I said, will you marry me? And I said, I think I'm going to throw up. But you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) But that was also not the response I was expecting. I'm not very graceful. Well, (laughs) so I clarified and said, does that mean yes? Yeah, it meant yes. You said yes. (laughs) So that was fun. Oh, yeah. So instead of doing um, traditional wedding gifts and whatnot, we're going to have a GoFundMe where uh, we're going to put the proceeds toward our first home, which is going to be a RV. Um, and we're with our job, since it's so flexible, we can transfer every six months. So we're planning on getting the RV and living out of it, and then transferring every six months to a different place so we get to see the, the country. And then for our honeymoon, we're going to do portions of the Pacific Crest Trail, the PCT.
5: Yeah, we can get a three-month leave of absence from our job without losing our job. So um, we're going to do that. So we're going to hike as far as we can on the PCT, starting from um, south, going north. And we're just going to essentially walk for three months. Yeah. I mean. Do you like spending time together? Yeah.
9: It's
5: nice. <laughs> yeah. We get to talk about really stupid stuff. Yeah. You essentially get to hear me rant <laughs> about feminism and and sing random songs. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things about backpacking and, and doing outdoorsy stuff as we do is all the place the locations are normally in small towns, which tend to be mountainy and very uh, conservative and um, traditional. So we stick out when we go, like, into town to those places. Um, We get stares often. Uh, We get gender questions on the trail, like we did this time, the guy on the horse. Yeah,
9: we were out hiking, and some guy said, um, ladies, and then he goes, well, I... I assume, but you know what assuming does these days. There's something along those lines. Yeah, he's
5: like, you you can't really assume these days, can you? And we were just kind of like, uh, okay. (laughs) And we pet his horse, and then he kind of went on his way, so. Yeah, he
9: told us we looked feminine because we had earrings, which kind of shocked us,
5: because. Because everyone has earrings. Yeah, a
9: lot of people have.
5: Like, we both have, like, plugs, so it's not like we had you know, dangling earrings or anything. Yeah, like hoop earrings, yeah. which is fine too, but that's such an odd thing to say while well, backpacking. Yeah. You probably had never seen any queers before. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean normally we just get stares.
9: Yeah, it, you know, sometimes we can feel underhand comments, but it's never really directed exactly at us, I guess.
5: Well, I don't know. <laughs> People are generally nice if we talk to them. Yeah, but it's definitely like a Point and stare kind of situation. Right. And we're probably lucky it's just that, but it should yeah, be. Yeah, I mean, way. it wouldn't deter me from hiking because, you know, we deserve to be there as much as anyone else, but it is uh, clear that a lot of the people have not seen, um, uh, I don't know, people like us. Yeah, people
9: like <laughs> us. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's that. And the last thing we wanted to talk about is our Instagram page and YouTube page. Um, We have a lot of future plans with those where we hope to do binder giveaways and um, donate money to LGBTQ charities
5: um, and other pages kind of like ours. So that we can help people, you know, raise money for nonprofits, binder giveaways for other peeps like us that maybe aren't quite as... um, Privileged.
9: Yeah, absolutely. So you can definitely find us on YouTube or Instagram. We're the non-binary nomads. Uh it's our our handle's just non-binary
6: nomads. All one word. Thanks.
5: Thank you. Bye.
6: The sub theme of cultural differences continues now in Widewater, a poem by Drew Marland. Drew lives and works on a canal boat in the west of England. As this poem twists along, like the canal through the landscape, her keen observational eye traces the undercurrents of class, settlement, migration, and belonging. The intermingling of all these elements the council worker who talks historical battles, the bright kingfisher, the Polish farm worker, the landowners who try to block off rights of way, the badgers, and the morning dew that settles on everything alike. This richness, when you let it, almost overwhelms the slogan that creates a sharp full stop. At the end of the poem.
4: Widewater. He tried to get the moorings there removed, said Julian off Bimble. Julian cuts grass for Wiltshire Council, shifts the roadkill. Mostly he can chuck it through their hedge. But cats and dogs get taken in whatever state they're in and logged. Someone might be missing them. He sails the pounds from Hungerford to Horton, more or less. Stays round the Vale of Pusey, where he works. We met at dawn. A kingfisher bashed a minnow on the branch, then darted on a quick blue spark against wide water's reeds. Spent thousands on the legal fees, for all the good it did. Still, he keeps the gate locked at the top of the track. Can't keep folk out. There's been a path since back before King Alfred came and met his Thanes there on the Tump. They went and beat the Danes way up there on the down. See the lane? The winter the canal froze hard. They had to carry coal and water down from the end. A buzzard circled Pickle Hill. The stockman, on his quad, moved the electric fence across the field a little way, called out in Polish for the herd to graze. We brushed the dew off meadow and Butterbur, grown shoulder-high, through which the ways to moorings had been bashed for boats at least half-hidden from the track. Eve, Nettie, Bimble... Jessie, Aaron, making a home here for a few more days, then moving on. Below the big ash, where the ground is clear, around last night's fire circle lay empty cans of beer and smoke blacked cooking pots on half a scaffold plank. A small child's bicycle leaned on the bank. Across the bridge, we passed the big new house, in whose walled gravel courtyard sat a jag. Along the drive's wide, closely tended verge, rebellious moles had tumped the smooth-mown grass, and grey hairs on a strand of wire showed how the badger made its customary way into the pasture, where, above the grazing Jacob flock, the tilting billboard claimed, We want our country back.
7: Back on land, Jonathan, my brilliant co-editor, recalled a conversation with Chrissy and June during a group walk. We dive in and out of the conversation as if we were walking along with the members of the Hastings and Rother Rainbow Alliance. Jonathan took an experimental approach to the edit, which brings the talk close to the listener. I defy you not to want to join in the conversation as you listen. Asher as did.
8: Top all of you are, top all
4: of you are, top all of you are, stop
10: all of you are, top all of you are, stop all of you are, stop all of you are, top
6: all of you are the okay walkers, walkers, fourteen
10: walkers, 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 whatever your sexuality is or whatever your whatever you like doing on a sunday afternoon it's it's just a little bit of who you are it's not all of who you are
6: yeah i think that's one of the nice things about the the usual walking group the Uh monthly walking group and kind of about this as well is that you're not only coming together because of an aspect of your, like, sexuality or yeah. your gender identity. Mm. You're also coming together because you enjoy doing an activity.
10: Yeah,
3: exactly. I think that's shared interest. Shared interests, yes. 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 Yeah, it's it's it developed into, this, you know, I view it as a, a social network. You know, that it's uh, just something that I like doing with a group of people. You know. That,
10: we're on a lovely walk between um, Heathfield and I think we're going to Polgate. It's on the Cuckoo Trail which I've never been on before, in fact never heard of until I moved to this area a year ago. And it's a beautiful hot July day but there's lots of shade and lots of lovely trees and we're walking along a disused train track which is quite exciting really.
6: Are you a big walker?
10: Well, yeah. I over the last ooh, ten years or so. Oh gosh, you've got decades ago. Uh, I never used to be, and then we had a family pet that needed walking, and I got into it a bit by then. I lived
7: in short life housing, and the uh, people that were in the other houses were all keen
10: walkers. And I used to live in Manchester, and they got as you may well know there's this wonderful canal network all over Manchester. and the north in general and we used to go away weekends friday night we'd drive out of london we'd go and camp somewhere and lake district or down to dorset and spend the weekend walking so i started walking with a friend and we do these little canal walks we go to a certain park and it used to be the same thing back and forth and the good thing about canal walks is two good things one is they're flat and two is that even I can't get lost on them. And uh, when I was at college, I was reluctant reluctant walk really. But then that got a bit dull, so we then, one weekend, we went a bit further on that we'd never been to, and then got really hooked. And then for over about six months, every week, every weekend, we'd go out Saturday and Sunday to a different bit of, it's called the Cheshire Ring Canal. I
3: went up because it was like the sort of social aspect of it because the walking itself I found quite hard <laughs> so it was several years before I actually really enjoyed walking and
10: it's wonderful there's loads of countryside nature reclaiming bits you go through old industrial towns it's yeah and, and that really got me into walking I guess it's like a drug isn't it actually start <laughs>
1: but i more I more enjoyed the time in the pub afterwards for a <laughs> drink
10: and, and something to eat that was uh, it, yeah it wet my appetite and then I started to go for walks. Well, I always have done a little bit up in the Peak District and things, but that's, that's when I realized I wasn't as fit as I thought I was, because <laughs> 10 miles along the canal is one thing and then three minutes up a hill is <laughs> just as bad. So.
7: Yes, yeah. yeah, so I'd never done it as a kid, and I'd, I do think sometimes you have to acquire the taste for it, haven't you? The, I always found it really hard work. Yeah. Because
10: particularly this group a quite fit, and they used to do a lot of hill walking. A political campaigner, um, so that oh, takes up I a lot of time with yeah, um, so people's assembly against austerity, sort of nationally and locally. I've always been involved in that, but for the last four years or so, and that's that's very rewarding. A Bit like walking in the way you just meet with like-minded people. You're sort of just embracing certain aspects of life, and I suppose just, yeah, try to make the world a bit better. And
7: Interesting,
3: isn't it? The history of uh, you know walking networks in um, Britain, you yeah. know, The whole movement, the walking movement.
6: Yeah, and the rights of way. And
10: yes, and you know how people fought to keep those rights of
6: way, and I and still do. And, and ha- yes, and how we benefit from that. Yeah. And it's, I think, um, people in the UK often don't really appreciate that it's so accessible. Mm. But, you know, yes, we've got this this rail trail that we're walking on here, which is a thing that lots of countries have, but lots of countries don't have. All of these little side trails where you can get off and go east or west or down through the fields, or, you know, and essentially kind of walk (laughs) the the whole way across the country just using footpaths if you wanted to.
10: I started off, God, decades ago with CND and that was, we set up a peace camp in London inspired by Green. I mean, it was an RAF base, one of the London suburbs. That was when I was a teenager. And then that kick-started it. And then I used to do political lobbying, going to our MP in Westminster. And then from CND, then Friends of the Earth, writing newsletters. But yeah, in recent years, particularly with the People's Assembly, it's getting out there, doing, kind of political stunts as well as the protest just trying to put something on that is a bit different that engages with different people who normally just walk past and don't want the leaflet and they want to be because that, that's the thing otherwise it's the same old same old like yesterday and we were talking on what was it the first of July so yesterday there was a huge national demo and a celebration of the NHS's 70th birthday which was put on by people's assembly and health campaigns together And. That's a kind of wonderful feeling that you know when you're on a demonstration or a protest with people like that. You just it is like this wave of euphoria because you you really are you feel you can change the world and you are in your own little way bit by bit and steadfast. I live in St. Leonard's and it's it's one of the reasons I moved there last year was I just love the kind of there's an independent spirit and perhaps that's part of living by the sea because. Up until then, I've only ever lived in big cities, and it's just a kind of a sense of freedom, really, and it's almost like people who live or run away to the sea and uh, just do their own thing. Why do you think that is? That's a kind of holiday spirit, a different pressure of life from some cities. The sea air, I mean, I just walk by the sea every day to go to the shops or just to go for a walk. And although I don't particularly get down, even on a fantastic day, my spirit's are lifted even more just by the big skies. It's a sense of freedom, I think, a sense of doing your own thing. And even if you're in work five days a week, you can just pop out and then you've got this whole, the beach and the whole vista. It just does free your spirit.
6: It does make such a difference to have half of your horizon clear. I
10: think, yeah, i have I, I never really thought of that until moving here. And a few things people have said about... Yeah, like catchment area, and you've only got it's like the, the semi-circle. You've not, you've just got that lovely expansive coast out there. And perhaps that's it. Perhaps it kind of leads to clear thoughts or a different thought process, even when you just look at that big. Clear thoughts or a different thought process, even
7: when you just look at that big expanse. And that's it for issue two. Thanks once again to all of our contributors. If you'd like to find out more about them and about each of the pieces, please have a look at the show notes at queerouthere.com.
6: And thanks also to you, the listeners. If you're queer or LGBTQIA+, and you've heard something that inspired you or piqued your interest, we really hope you consider creating a piece for our next issue. You can get started now if you like, and submissions will open in the new year. We'd love to hear your music, audio postcards, poetry, conversations and interviews, experimental pieces, field recordings, mini documentaries, whatever you make on the outdoors theme, so long as it's between one minute and ten minutes long.
7: As always, we're really keen to gather submissions from folks who are underrepresented in mainstream and queer media. So if that's you and you want to discuss an idea with us, get in touch.
6: In the meantime, please let us know what you thought of issue two. You can drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter, just search Queer Out Here. You can review us on your blog, give us a rating on your podcast app, or just send us an email. You can also sign up to our newsletter on our website to make sure you get all the details of our next call for submissions and any future issues.
7: Until next time, from me, Alice.
6: And me, Jonathan.
7: Goodbye. Goodbye.